0: You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs.
1: Welcome to the UI podcast. This is an episode recorded on February 19th, 2020. And my name is Ruzbe Parsi. I'm head of the Middle East North Africa program here. In this episode, we will be discussing rising insecurities in the Middle East and North Africa, and what the recent wave of protests across the region reveal about state-society relations. With me to discuss this topic is Dr. Lucia Ardovini, Research Fellow here at the U.I. MENA program, Dr. Dalia Ghanem Resident Scholar at Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut, and Dr. Dylan O'Driscoll, Researcher in Governance and Society program at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. I hope you will enjoy this episode. Welcome to the seminar on insecurities and social tensions in the Middle East and North Africa. We are in particular going to look at events and developments in Egypt, Algeria, Iraq and Lebanon. And in order to do that we have three distinguished guests who are going to introduce themselves.
0: Hi, thank you. Uh, I'm Dr. Dalia Ganem. I am a resident scholar at the Carnegie Middle East Centre in Beirut.
2: And I'm Dr. Lucia Ardovini. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow here at UE.
3: Uh, Thank you, Risbe. My name is Dylan O'Driscoll and I am a researcher at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute.
1: Very good. Excellent. So, why a seminar on insecurities what's happening in the region that requires this kind of uh, scrutiny who wants to start
2: uh, so I, the idea that we had behind this seminar was to bring an analytical and comparative lens to uh, current and developing events in 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 the region there was Uh, A lot of attention there was being paid to so-called democratic protest in 2011. And since then, the assumption has been that everything that happens after that needs to be therefore be part of the same wave. And I think that it's very important to deconstruct that and and actually see what's going on on a case-by-case basis. So that's the main idea.
1: Why don't we start with Lebanon? Because it's been a lot in the headlines.
0: Yeah, well, in Lebanon, everything started on October 17. I was lucky enough to be there. Uh, so uh, everything started after the government announced uh, attacks on WhatsApp calls. Of course, this was only, you know, the trigger, but of course, you know, the socio-economic problems, the corruption, the bad governance, and every, you know, aspect of the Lebanese life actually was, you know, put into question. On October 17. So, Lebanese decided to take up to the street and to say how fed up and disgusted they were with their uh, leadership. Since then, things I wouldn't say have been, you know, moved or Have been moving that much. Uh, There is still, you know, protest, not on a daily basis, but on a weekly basis. There is road blockage also. And unfortunately, the security forces showed its real uh, face, if I may say, um, as, uh, you know, there was uh, some uh, uh, repression going on. Uh, so whether this uh, Hiraq, because it is also called in Lebanon Herak is going to succeed or no, this is still a pending question.
1: So the qualitative difference, and we're going to get back to that when we talk about Iraq as well, the qualitative difference is that it is not sectarian in the way that people usually think of protests, or what is the difference between now and, say, roadblocks and protests five years ago or 10 years ago in Lebanon
0: yeah this is the narrative at least you know this is what people have been saying they've been saying that I mean uh that it doesn't matter whether Christian or Muslim or Shia or Sunni you are every Lebanese took up to the street on October 17 to say no to the regime well that's that's partly true this is what I've seen you know on the street when I you know, took up to the street with them. I even took my five years old to teach her what a revolution looks like. And it was quite a funny experience. Uh, but then again, to which extent this narrative is true, you know, I think if you really push people, you know, they will definitely, you know, their reflexes will kick in, and they will come back to their old, you know, habits of sectarianism and, you know, this also idea of zaim and the leader, you know, everyone has his own sect and his own leader that in time of crisis would just, you know, go and run to, 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 to this kind of, uh, of community.
1: Okay, uh, why don't we jump from there to Iraq? Because uh, we have seen similar kinds of protests in Iraq, what is the difference, and and uh, what do they have in common? Um, I suppose
3: I'll pull up on two things that you mentioned. First was was the media response that Lebanon is getting, and and in Iraq. It's probably not not as much as it should be given the violence. Um, so more than 600 people have been killed. Uh, tens of thousands have been injured. I mean, the security forces have acted extremely violently against the protesters, whether it's through snipers, through uh, tear gases at the protesters rather than above the protesters, and, and actual even rockets being fired towards the protesters. So the violence has been, I mean, tremendous. And, and this is, I mean, I suppose there's a slight Iraq fatigue when it comes to, to what has been happening in the country. And this is possibly why the media decided to focus after the U.S. drone attack rather than the actual uh, demands of the protesters. And the second thing is that I'll pull up that you mentioned was the sectarianism. So again, this protest is very much issue-based. It's not the the traditional kind of uh, that we saw during um, Maliki's era of of you know Sunni marginalization, protesting against that. This is protesting against corruption, failed delivery of services, uh, the the huge unemployment that exists in Iraq and the, the corruption, which, uh, so it's, it's basically about the division of power uh, between the political elite and the political establishment. The protesters want radical change, not, not small change, they want radical change. They want the whole system to change so that they actually get to see some of the wealth of the country. So, um, however, um, the, the protests are not countrywide. I mean, we're not seeing protests in the Kurdistan region and in many of the Sunni areas. But the protests that are happening, uh, mainly, particularly in Baghdad, are um, involving many communities. And what we are seeing is that women are actively involved in the protests, which we we have not seen before in Iraq. Um, So there is, I suppose, despite the violence, the atmosphere is is slightly different to previous protests, and they are resilient. They have been there since October, despite the violence, camped out, um, and they're there every day. So I mean, I think it is is quite different to previous protests, Um, and it is, I mean, something big is happening in Iraq. Uh, Whether it can reach fruition, that that is what we'll see over the coming uh, government formation talks.
1: Okay, so let's delve into that a little bit. They want radical change, which would, in a sense, be revolutionary, but they don't have the means to do that. And what they're asking of a political elite that is very much invested in keeping things the way they are is basically to abolish themselves or go into retirement. What chances do they have? What kind of instruments do they have at their disposal to not only literally confront the violence of the state, but to kind of win in a war of attrition against a state that has all this means to its own disposal?
0: Well, uh, that's, that's a very good question. When we see, for instance, what's going on in Algeria, and everything, if I may say, started in Sudan, then in Algeria. That was a year ago when Algerian took up to the street on February 22nd, 2019, and the movement has been super resilient. It has been uh, you know, reaching all socioeconomic backgrounds and all regions of Algeria, meaning 48 wilayas have been participating to the protest every Friday, Uh, since uh, for one year now and one thing that is super important for the Algerian case it's the absence of violence, total absence of violence from, one, the population, because the population did not want to engage in any kind of uh, violence, and to a certain extent from the security forces that really didn't use as much violence as we expected them to. to. Actually, there was few arrests, okay, but that's it, Uh so, uh, and everything started actually with that slogan, Algerian uh, invented back then, the hashtag, which means they will all be removed. And it's very interesting because on September, uh, on October, sorry, 17, when things started in Lebanon, there was an hashtag that was created, which said, which means also, all means all. So it's the same kind of uh, of uh, uh, slogans that we see. Now, to what extent c- can the people remove all of a system and all of the regime? I'm going to talk here for the Algerian case that I know best. This is a very resilient regime that has been going on since the independence of the country in 1962. Uh, in a study that I published in 2016-2017, I... I, I I desiccate, if I may say, the Algerian regime, and I explain what is the the secrets behind its longevity. This is a system that has been resilient because it created actually a system of adaptation, if I may say. Each time the Algerian regime sees that there is, you know, weak spot, it's either, you know, develop um, and give some economic resources to the people. This is what it did in 2011, when the Arab Spring broke up in neighboring Tunisia and then spread. In Algeria, it didn't happen. In Algeria in 2011, let us remember, but but, but by that time, Algeria had one of the biggest exchange reserves in the world. It has the eighth position. So it could, thanks to this money, buy social peace. And this is what it did. And then 2011, it also gave some political resources that means that you know uh, they they came in a form of uh, reform packages reform of the constitution uh, more political rights more women equality and so on and so forth so this is what they do they adapt, but they don't change. And there is one, one sentence that I love using, um, that actually describes perfectly well the Algerian system, is that quote from Giuseppe de Lampedusa in, the, in the, the Leopard. He said, if we want things to stay as they are, things have to change. This is exactly the Algerian political approach to politics.
1: Very interesting. And in a sense, then a huge contrast to the very bloody history, both of the War of Liberation, but also the events that followed and the events in the late 1980s and early 1990s and the Civil War. So one question to keep in mind is whether that kind of uh, truce will hold. But uh, let's leave that for the moment and turn to the other, if you will, even more depressing case, which is Egypt, which for a long time was a symbol of the Arab Spring and where there actually was uh, democratic elections and a change of guard, at least on the on the outside, of things, but where the military remained in control, and now also holds the presidency in almost putin-esque way, uh, perhaps for the foreseeable future.
2: Yes, exactly, and and this is also one of the main reasons behind us discussing the case of Egypt today, because I think it's really interesting to see what happens when structural change appears to begin but then is not followed through with Uh, what we're seeing today in egypt what we've seen for the past nine years has been uh, a counter-revolution in the making and a counter-revolution that is not only bringing back the deep state that arguably never really went away but is also superseding the expectations and superseding what has been the rule of the deep state and the rule of the military force in egypt for the past few decades I think it's very interesting in terms of hashtags and in terms of slogan, both in the Algerian and the Sudanese case, one of the hashtags was not another Egypt. So Egypt has become a a reference point for protesters and governments and regimes themselves in terms of what to do and what not to do if you want to maintain power or if you want to seize power and actually change things. What we're seeing in the Egyptian case today is that the counter-revolution is pushing the country to the brink of exhaustion. People are fatigued. They're not just fatigued by the continued need to survive and the lack of political space that is now almost all but shrunk. But also with the fact that there is not a real alternative to Sisi. Um, And this is something that that I always find very disheartening when I speak to my Egyptian friends and when I speak to my interviewees across the region who now live in exile, is that even the people who are the most fervent political opponents and the most fervent dissidents, they don't see a post-Sisi scenario. They don't know what can come after him. Um, However, there are deep cracks, I think, in Sisi's uh, strongman facade, The protests that spread uh, across the country in in the fall of 2019 and the response to this protest, I think, show that the regime is deeply worried by the outbreak of other eventual uprisings. They are very aware that Sisi's legitimacy is shrinking and there are even indications that there's probably an internal coup within the military forces that is in the making to eventually replace Sisi himself. So things are not as stable as they seem, but I think it's a, it's a very bleak situation nonetheless.
1: That's the power of inertia, mm-hmm. right? An argument against revolution or upheaval is always what are you going to replace it with and can you realistically replace it with something? If you can't, people prefer to at least deal with the devil they know. Exactly. So that's uh, an, an important aspect. But it's also the power of inertia in the sense that there is resilience in authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. The whole story of the Arab Spring is a bit reminiscent of 1848 revolution in Europe, where what came as the return of absolutism was actually much worse than the absolutism that the revolutions turned against in the beginning. So Egypt is perhaps the, the best case for that. Things are worse now than during Mubarak. Yes. But that then again uh, begs the question, if people from below cannot attain change, an officer replacing another officer... Will it qualitatively make a difference for Egypt?
2: I don't think in the short term it will, but what I think the protest in 2019 and, and the very small pockets of resilience and resistance that do exist in Egypt today, what they show is that grievances and discontent are now across the generational spectrum, across the political and religious spectrum. This is something that is really bringing people together uh, and people were very deeply divided after the coup in July in 2013. The, the one year in government of the Muslim Brotherhood not only alienated a lot of people from the political process, but really dig deep in terms of dividing people, of really creating different factions of the Islamist versus the secular and the leftist versus like the, the royalist. It's, um, this is something that is changing now because I think that people are realizing that they're all in it together. Um, and it's now the time to to come together and it's something that is happening in the diasporas as well, something that 2013 and the counter-revolution have created are essentially completely new diasporas completely new Egyptian diasporas abroad Um, a lot of the people who compose them are in self-exile there is a a very high number of displaced Egyptians who don't actually know whether they are allowed to come back to the country or not, so they live in this permanent state of uncertainty, which at the same time is pushing them to try to mobilise from abroad. The other kind of historical Egyptian diasporas are much more labour and work-based rather than political-based. So there is change that is happening at the fringes, and this change is hopefully going to be reflected from within as well at some point.
0: I think that's particularly true so for the Algerian and the Lebanese case this is the first time that we see the Algerian diaspora abroad spe- specifically in France to take up to the street also not every friday for practical reason but every uh, sunday and they've been doing it like their Algerian counterparts on a weekly basis mm-hmm. it is also true for the Lebanese the Lebanese diaspora also took up you know this decision this political decision to also, you know, cooperate from abroad and to seek change and uh, you know ask for change. So I think there is a lot of common uh, commonalities between these uh, these the different countries.
1: Um, I think that's super interesting. But let me play the devil's advocate here for a moment. Uh, in all the cases that you have been presenting here now, we're talking about lack of governance and corruption. And to some degree, all the old ideologies have, if not totally burnt out, they are somewhat faded because none of them have really stood the Mm -hmm. test of time. The system, which at least in Egypt, briefly, in Iraq, continuously, kind of, in Lebanon, also kind of, has been the way to express all of these different demands has been democracy. It's not, you know, Not fully-fledged democracy, not perfectly working democracy, but the ballot box version of democracy, at least, if not necessarily always everything else that you would usually want for a well-functioning democracy. So the question is how much of this is going to reflect, reflect badly on the idea of democracy, one. And second, at some point, governance and wanting governance cannot simply be a technocratic issue. It will eventually have to be one where people say in order to get governance, we have to do it this way or we have to do it that way. And their ideology in whatever form you would like to define it as will have to come back because agreeing that you want governance is not the same thing as having a proper platform for how to run a country.
0: Uh, Well, I think, you know, for the Algerian case, for instance, it's a hybrid regime. I would take, you know, the the definition of Larry Diamond because it's really what it is. It's a regime that has been mixing for a while since the 80s, the, the late 80s, between elements of democracy and elements of authoritarianism. Now, to answer your question, I think what people have been asking, be it in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Iraq or in Algeria, is a popular democracy. They do no longer want to have a parliament that is supposed to represent them when actually this parliament has been co-opted, manipulated by the leadership and is not actually bringing any change in their daily life. There, I, I've seen it in the Algerian case. People are... People do not trust parliamentarian. Actually, according to the 2018 Arab Barometer, and that was even before the Algerian revolution, only 14% of Algerians believed in parliament. So that's how bad it is. People today, and I speak for Algerians, but I think you can tell me, you guys, what you think about other countries. But I think Algerians are asking for post-materialist, Values. They are asking for equality. They are asking for dignity. It is unbelievable to see that for one year they have been taken up to the street asking for more dignity, asking for that dignity to get back to them. So I think we are in a different, you know, set of mind from also a different generation that is no longer, you know, saying that this is this is what we have and this is the best we can have. So let's keep the statue quo. By the opposite, this new generation wants something different and doesn't agree with the old uh, game, uh, the old sorry, um, the old rules of the game.
3: I mean, I think there are levels of democracy. I mean, unquestionably, Iraq is democratic. We have elections every four years. Uh, a, you know, the the prime minister does change generally. I mean, apart from once, they, they they get a new prime minister in. The problem is, I think, it is the same people dividing power every four years, and this is what people are tired of. It's not. A, it's not a. It's not that they don't feel um, that the system is democratic. They feel that it is a, a sort of author, authoritarian democracy, in that it's a division of power between the same elites every four years. They make the same promises every four years, and every four years they fail to deliver. So this is what people are tired of um, on the streets in Iraq, and, and particularly how you know, the population is young. I mean, over six, just under 60% are under 25, just under 40% of these are unemployed. So, And this is growing every year. I mean, the, the population is getting younger every year. So at, at one stage, this is going to collapse, you know, because they cannot carry on dividing the p- power between the same old political elites without delivering on the services. And this is what the people want. And if we think about, um, I suppose, democracy, the protests were actually affecting some change. First of all, they forced the Prime Minister to resign. Uh, this was because he, he could not deliver on their demands. Why could he not deliver on the demands? Because he was part of the system. He was reliant on the system for power. He could not do anything. Secondly... Um, when, when the political parties tried to put forward candidates, the um, president of Iraq, Baham Saleh, he refused to endorse them. This was, again, because the protesters didn't endorse them. So, again, they were, they were making gradual change. And then, most importantly, I think, the election laws, which allow this system to really uh, continue year on, year on. Um, they managed to have small changes, and they were being debated in parliament. What happened then? The U.S. decided to have a drone attack where they assassinated uh, two important people in Iraq, one Mohandist, one Soleimani, and all of a sudden the government has to change focus. No longer are they focusing on the protesters' demands. All of a sudden they're focusing on other interventions. Again, this brought uh, many political parties together. They gave them a common enemy. It gave them a common goal, getting the U.S. forces out of Iraq. So all of a sudden, when the protesters were just starting to affect change, the whole the the whole argument changed and most importantly it brought cider back to the tables where whereas he was part of the I mean, he used protesters, but he was part, at least you know part of the protest system where he's, his members, the Blue Helmets, were protesting. All of a sudden, he is in Iran negotiating for the next prime minister. And what the protesters are arguing about this is it's the same thing. The same political parties are deciding who's going to be the next prime minister. Where is it happening? In Iran, not in Iraq. So, and they don't endorse him, but yet the political parties are trying to put him forward. So although they made slight changes, we are back to the traditional table of political parties deciding a prime minister who cannot deliver because he relies on them for his power.
2: Yeah, I think that once again, the Egyptian case is interesting, because it's it's quite different from everything that we've been discussing so far. Uh, up until 2011, there has been some sort of, again, different levels of democracy, I guess, happening, like there was um, a function in Parliament, opposition parties, even the Brotherhood was allowed to participate in parliamentary politics to an extent. Obviously, this was regulated, but there was some, at least a parvence, I will say, of um, democratic procedures happening. However, what has happened since 2014 when Sisi came to power is what I, in my work, call the institutionalisation of authoritarianism. There is not even an effort anymore to make it look like democratic procedures are taking place. What we're seeing is that Sisi is consistently and systematically seizing extra constitutional powers. Now, this is sometimes approved through parliament or through referendum, and I'm using inverted commas here, uh, because what is happening is that like, the presidency is seizing all sorts of judiciary powers here. The regime has been ruling under an, in, an uninterrupted state of emergency, which essentially allows the security forces to do as they please with protesters in the street, to sort of uh, absolutely crash every instance of opposition and every instance of dissent. And this is going back to what you were saying about dignity, like people are growing increasingly disillusioned with, with democracy, what they want is, is not election. They don't believe in the ballot box anymore. They, they want to be able to provide for their family. They want to be able to have their voices heard. And they're going back to a way more popular way, I think, of being represented, worker association students' association, very small unions, Mm -hmm. they are dialing it back as much as possible because even if you look at what happened in 2011, for example, the Brotherhood, one of the oldest oppositional actors in the country, they didn't believe in democracy themselves. The great majority of the movement did not want to participate in the political process. So I think that we really need to move away from our Western lens and, and really dial it back ourselves as researchers when we look at what's happening on the ground and what people want in this sense.
1: But let me then finally, at the end of our conversation, bring out my inner Marxist. (laughs) You're talking about post-material values. I agree. I, I think that's important. But when you're talking about political stability and the development of a country, you also have to talk about economics. And so what... Does that play not just the role for triggering protests, but what are the future prospects of economic development and growth in these countries? I mean, if we look at Tunisia, for instance, we can see that one of the most important reasons for and dangers of greater instability there isn't the political system necessarily. It's the fact that there are no jobs. Mm -hmm. you You can go and vote until you're blue in the face. If there is no job, there is no job.
0: Yeah, well, I totally agree with you and for the Algerian case, to answer it very rightly and bluntly, there is a looming crisis and a looming economic crisis. And when it is going to hit Algeria and Algerians, it's going to be pretty violent. Let me just give you a few numbers. First of all, it should be said that when Algerians took up to the street on February 22nd, 2019, they didn't do it for economic reasons. They did it for purely political reasons. They did it because they didn't want Abdelaziz Bouteflika, president who has been in office for 20 years, to represent himself again for a fifth term. However, I don't think that their demands are going to be only political. In the upcoming weeks, we months maybe, we will see a change or a shift in their demands. Why? The economic uh, situation in Algeria is not good. First of all, uh, Algeria has been hit severely by the drop in oil prices in mid-June 2014. Uh, We are talking about a rentier state that relies heavily on hydrocarbons. Uh, So by 2014, uh, in 2014, Algeria's 2013-2014, Algeria, as I told you, exchange reserve uh, reached $200 billion, okay? Today, they dropped. They dropped severely. They melted like snow under the sun. Uh, why? Because the government used them to, uh, you know, to sustain its policy of subsidies, very heavy subsidies, and so on and so forth. And it is believed that uh, by the end of two thousand twenty, they are going to reach forty-seven billion dollars, which is very little. And Algerian government has only approximately thirteen months. Of imports, unemployment today is officially at eleven percent, but I don't believe that it is probably much more. Uh, We are talking about a very young population. Uh, So, what will happen in twelve to thirteen months when the Algerian government will not be able anymore to import goods because seventy percent of the goods in Algerian market? Are coming from abroad now there are talks about shale gas but again one the Algerian government has to face severe and serious uh, opposition uh, of the population who lives uh, around uh, this region in the desert because they don't want shale gas exploitation and second Even when you talk about shale gas, it took America years to develop, you know, the technology, the expertise, and so on and so forth. So it is impossible for a country, you know, like Algeria, that doesn't have the technology, that doesn't have the expertise, that doesn't have the political stability. We've all seen how many times Sonat the national uh, oil company, have seen a different uh, head uh, at uh, its, uh, you know, uh, as director. So there is a political and economic stability and I am worried that you know in a few months uh, demands are going to turn economic and the situation might you know escalate a bit
2: yes I'm afraid that even in the case of Egypt the the picture does not it's not a positive one uh, it doesn't look good uh, something that is keeping Egypt afloat at the moment are international loans. And also the fact that the country remains the second biggest receiver of US military aid in the region after Israel, uh, which is something that the US Congress has already pushed to uh, suspend because of the documented breaches in human rights. So one important question to ask here is what happens after Trump? Is this something that is gonna keep flowing into Egypt? And if it doesn't, we're talking about billions here, like what we, we substituted with. Um since we were talking about ideologies, uh, something that is happening in Egypt is what happens usually under neoliberal capitalism, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. And Sisi continues to harvest uh, consent and support with vanity projects like the construction of a new administrative capital in the desert, which the country literally cannot pay for. Um, unemployment is rising, over 40% of Egyptians now live below poverty line. And this is something uh, that goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. The counter-revolution is pushing people to, to their very limit. The demands in 2011 were bread, freedom and human dignity, and they are more real than than ever today.
3: I think in Iraq, I mean, it is an incredibly wealthy country if we look at the hydrocarbons. However, how this wealth has been spent, it's been spent on maintaining the system. Uh, corruption. It's, it's fed corruption, and it has not been spent on developing a private economy. And that is the big problem with the youth unemployment, because money has been spent on uh, basically buying political support and not on developing any form of economy. So and as as we mentioned already you know it's if it's so reliant on oil prices it's it is also very vulnerable to any changes in this uh, but like egypt it also receives a lot of military aid and other aid and again what is this aid used for it's it's used to maintain the system um, whether it's whether whether this military aid is used against protesters in some way or not or whether it whether the system that has formed the military is used against protesters i mean when you talked about stability earlier on this is what when we what we see from the international community is they're so intent on having a stable iraq that they're not intent on developing iraq or developing any change in iraq because they they are part of maintaining the system and, and that to be blunt uh, they maintain this system of corruption they maintain this system of the same political elites being returning to power each year you mentioned earlier about what, what can change if, if, you know, basically the political elite have to retire themselves, as you said. Um, this is true. Uh, the next prime minister, basically his, his main mandate would be to have elections. So early elections too so if that, if you're if you're being elected to to form elect to to have elections you obviously cannot affect change so this makes the next elections quite important and whether we can have enough political actors in iraq who are against this, this system or whether we have the same kind of, I suppose, voter apathy that allows the same political elites to return. And this makes these elections that, that would hopefully happen early uh, extremely important in Iraq. And whether the protest movement can, tra- can transfer this protest movement on the streets to some sort of political movement. Uh, the election law sh- helps them in this, but can they actually uh, move forward and affect change in the political offices rather than on the streets?
1: So, with that bleak assessment of what's happening, but also with some rays of hope in that people are at least trying to change their life situations, I want to thank all three of you for participating in this uh, podcast. Thank, thank you.
0: you.
2: Thank, thank you. Very much. Thank you. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on twitter with ui sweden and we're
0: also on youtube where you can watch our seminars and interviews catch you later